0: Hey, everyone. This is Mark Trichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm excited today to have Mike Taliaferro, the co-owner of Compliance Tech. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Mark. How about yourself? I'm doing great. It's sunny Tuesday where I'm at, and I just got a nice walk in, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you the second time. You were a guest last summer, and I'm glad you were available so we could chat today about fair lending analysis of auto lending and also, as a subcategory of that, indirect lending. So I'm excited to let you share your wisdom on this topic with my listeners. So by the way, if somebody isn't aware of what your company is, and if you want to give a, a little bit of a background on. Compliance Tech, feel free as we start off here, a little bit of your background in Compliance Tech
1: also. Okay. So, pleasure to be here. The company is about 30 years old, and a little over 30 years old, and we started out as a due diligence company, getting loans ready for sale into the secondary market, and that's mortgage loans, small business loans, and apartment building loans, a variety of different types of loans. Then that business sort of tailed off and we had to develop a second act. And that second act basically said, what if we took this underwriting capability that we have and we overlaid it with the Humda data? And would that be of interest to lenders? And that gave birth to really our company. And so I can say we were the first company to develop fair lending software. And we started there with a Humda software. Then we started analyzing auto loans way back, probably 20 years ago now. And we were involved as experts in the first series of auto lending cases that developed, some of which got one of the studies that one of our economists did, got reported on the ABC 2020. So we have deep knowledge and history in this type of lending. And so we develop software to report to the government in the case of Hamda, in the case of CRA. And then we developed tools to analyze those data. And we provide consulting to help lenders navigate through the compliance rules with respect to fair lending.
0: Very good. Your pivot to a second act seems to have been amazingly successful. And I pivoted and I'm doing the podcast and I'm consulting and it's nice being able to take what you learned in one way, apply it in another way. And you guys are doing an amazing job out there and it's good for credit unions to have you there. So let's jump into some questions I've got here. So, Mike, can you provide an overview of fair lending analysis and its significance in the context of auto lending and then particularly drilling down into the indirect lending market?
1: Okay. Well, I'll start with basically start with the mortgage. Actually, the mortgage analysis has basically set the parameters and the structure for what fair lending means. And generally that means that you are required as a lender to develop a framework and an organization that will monitor the lending activities and to determine whether or not there are disparities in that lending activity by prohibited basis groups. And so that in general, we started that in lending. Lending has kind of sort of set the rules for redlining, for disparate treatment, disparate impact. All of those things have been enforced mostly in mortgage lending. And more recently, and somewhat historically, they have been ported over to the auto lending market. And so basically, it's the same rules, equally qualified applicants that were treated differently by a prohibited basis group. And so it's the same framework, but applied to a different kind of lending. And it'll be that way as well for small business loans. And I know we might talk about that towards the end of this conversation.
0: You got it. And so that's the parameters. I like how you compared real estate creating the parameters for all of that and that it's now appropriately being looked at as it relates to auto lending. As it relates to indirect lending, what would the key factors be that contribute to the potential fair lending issues that we're seeing? And then also, why
1: right now are we seeing indirect lending particularly under scrutiny? Okay. So why do we call indirect lending indirect? We call indirect lending indirect because it's not direct for one thing, but more clearly because the third party is involved and the third party being a dealer or perhaps another intermediary. The analog for indirect lending on the mortgage side is wholesale. So it's sort of like retail wholesale distinction. They just don't use the term wholesale in auto lending. They just say direct and indirect. So the third parties are involved. Now, because third parties are involved, there is lack of control over the third party. And so you don't know exactly what's going on with the third party. Nevertheless, the way the rules have evolved, you are responsible responsible for the acts of the third party. And there'll probably maybe be some litigation in the future on that, but that is sort of the general rule that you're responsible for the acts of the third party. You've engaged them, you've hired them. They are a substitute for your direct interactions with the customer. So basically they are effectively agents for you. Maybe not in a strict legal sense, but they are working for you and there is a compensation. So that lack of control is where it all starts. And so So you're responsible at least to monitor that third party's business, what they are doing, communicating with the third party as to what your requirements are as far as compliance is concerned, and checking to see whether or not they are complying. And that's kind of it in a nutshell.
0: And well, and I'm thinking of when I was an examiner and some of the things, I'm anything but an indirect lending expert. But I know that NCUA will want the credit unions to have their loan policies and procedures, not necessarily procedures, but the policies and what the rates are and what the length of employment requirements may be and what the debt to income requirements should be driven by what the credit union wants, not necessarily the indirect lenders. So for credit union was listening, maybe they'd say it's not lack of control, but less control. And then there are some things that there might be lack of control because the credit union has no idea who's sitting in front of them, right? So
1: other than it's just a pure statistical. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I would agree. There is some control, but it's limited also in a competitive sense too, because there's that, because it's a sales oriented business and you want the loan, And there's always that temptation not to be too strict because the business may go down the street. And so you have that tension as well.
0: And then the auto dealer is looking at, okay, which one can I make the most off of as well? So not necessarily what's in the best interest of my member from the credit union side, not necessarily what's in the best interest of the buyer.
1: Right. And also there's less control, but in some cases there is no control. So, for example, on how the finance person or the dealer is being compensated by their own dealership, you know, what incentives they have to behave in a way that increases fair lending risk.
0: Got it. That puts a good point on it. So how do credit unions typically assess fair lending compliance in an auto lending process?
1: Typically, the best way is by looking at data in the same or similar way that you would do it with the Humda data. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you view Humda, there is no federal data collection, standard data set. And the mere fact that there isn't is what makes it more complex. Because depending on what platform you use and what version of the platform you have, you may have different data than, say, the lender down the street. Also, you may not have the discipline on managing the data in a way that makes sure you create the right data for the analysis. So let me just give you an example about that. So in auto lending, something that while we have it in mortgage lending, it's more prominent in auto lending. You have this interaction that this counter-offer interaction. And being able to capture that is very important in figuring out at the end of the day whether or not there's been disparate treatment or even disparate impact because you want to capture that activity. There many of the platforms that I have seen, they have counter-offer captured, but they don't have it captured in a way in which it indicates that there was counter-offer activity on this application. So in other words, they may have offer as one of the actions versus origination versus denial, and they would all be mutually exclusive. In reality, they really need to capture whether or not there was Ever any counter offer activity in order to properly model it. And if I'm thinking about that right, it's because if I didn't get the deal I was asked for
0: and I was giving a counter offer and I was given that offer for the wrong reason because of the color of my skin or because I'm a woman instead of a man and that's not captured, you can't really, you don't really have the data that you'd need to make sure that that was being done fairly, or is
1: that- Well, I try to say it more straightforwardly as you want to see whether or not there's also different treatment in how Connor offers a conclude. If that varies by prohibited basis, it may be revealed that there's harder negotiations with one group versus another. Got it. A very important work that was done, I think, probably 15 years ago. It was reported in one law journal. I'll look it up and give it to you after this session. But this research indicated that a lot of the discrimination in auto-limiting results from where the auto dealer, the finance person, or the salesperson where they begin the discussion, where they begin the negotiation. And so in this study, they sent testers out to assess where was the starting point in the negotiation And what they found were was that the Black and Hispanics, they started at a higher, the dealer started at a higher price with them or a higher rate because they were making assumptions about the information they had. So it's is that asymmetric information. And so that resulted in disparate outcomes. I think that was an important study, and that's one of the things you want to get a handle on. And that's why it's important to look at those counter offers. And- yeah. If
0: you send me that study, I can put a link in the show notes when mm-hmm. this episode goes live. So that'd be good follow-up information for the listeners to have here. Sure. So fair lending regulations can be complex. I know you know them like the back of your hand, but how can lenders ensure that they are in compliance with these regulations while also providing competitive loan offerings to their consumers and to their members or their potential members? Yeah. So in the auto
1: arena, let me just say it's kind of hard. It's not. And the biggest hurdle is the data issues. Okay. So. Let me just back up a second. So you got this origination platform. And first thing you have to do is extract from that platform the data that are relevant to decisioning. And there are at least two sets of decisions, at least origination stage that we have to look at. And there are the underwriting decisions and the pricing decisions. Now, there is a third set, which is decisions after close in the servicing or repossession or things of that nature or collecting activities, that can happen too. But I want to concentrate though on the underwriting and pricing primarily. Those are the biggies. But if you talk about emerging issues that the servicing part of it is more of the emerging issues that CFPB is getting their hands around and delving into. But getting the right data, defining the right data to analyze is critical. And so that takes knowledge about, first of all, Your underwriting guidelines, your underwriting guidelines should map to your data. And when you develop a model, regression model, to determine whether or not there has been evidence of a statistically significant difference by prohibited basis group, when you develop that model, you will see whether or not the outcomes have been fair or not. So getting the data ready is critical, and there are some hurdles to that. There are also hurdles in auto lending. Lenders often, they may change and tweak their underwriting guidelines more frequently than, say, in mortgage lending, because mortgage lending is driven primarily by the secondary market agencies. So you have to be able to control for your tweaks in your guidelines, so you don't want to compare, say, your underwriting decisions, let's say, for the first half of this year, when you changed the underwriting policies on January one, to outcomes in the previous year when they were different. So all of that really important and, and capturing that. The other thing I would say is unlike mortgage, where if you're a relatively small mortgage lender, the modeling aspect of it is not going to be as important. In fact, you may not even have to do it. Comparative file analysis may suffice with a small mortgage lender. When it comes to auto lending, you don't have to be a large lender to have a large enough sample of loans to benefit from regression analysis. So I would say there would be more regression analysis to happen in auto lending as compared to mortgage lending. Got it. That makes sense. And that example of if you,
0: because you can easily change your policies because you're not going off the standard secondary market, It's you're changing variables. It's kind of like if if I started eating better and I started exercising, which one of those two variables is leading to my weight loss, right? If you're changing yeah. variables, it's hard to say what's causing what. Yes, you can't really get to the underlying causal influence. Sure. So, along the lines of like regression analysis, are there other proactive steps that lenders can take to address potential fair lending disparities in their policies, procedures, and in their institution?
1: Well, I think it's important to have the right resources together. And so I think it's important to have everybody at the table because one of the things I've seen, and I've seen it i see seen it in all kinds of companies, but I tend to see it a little more in credit unions that perhaps the compliance department is not empowered to gain resources. And so I mentioned that data issue. Well, it's not necessarily a simple thing for someone in the compliance or fair lending department to get the data from the IT department unless they have a dedicated resource. And so it's important to get the dedicated resources. It's important to have everybody who's involved in every aspect sitting at the table with respect to fair lending and the fair lending gets its, the attention that it deserves. So you need your marketing people. You need your people that manage the indirect lending at the table. You need your underwriting folks at the table. You need your Credit risk, people at the table as well. So when things come up that the fair lending perspective is discussed and analyzed, and that's how you best head off problems before they occur is having that conversation and not being a fair lending operation operating in isolation without resources. That's a fabulous point. When I think of that, I wrote that, get the right people at the table.
0: Whether it's at NCUA or a credit union, if you have stovepipes and you just have the individual department responsible for what they're responsible for, it's easier to make errors, whether it's fair lending or otherwise. And the other thing I wrote down is enterprise risk management. This sounds like it would fit exactly well into an enterprise risk management program. While NCUA doesn't require enterprise risk management, the bigger a credit union is, the more appropriate it is for NCUA to have one. And while they don't have one, their priorities and their policies and procedures and of all the risks, including fair lending risks, that they want credit unions to deal with, this would be a perfect way to make sure that people have a seat at the table, is inviting them to part of the enterprise risk management, development, Because again, they're at the table,
1: they're looking at the risks. It's a real risk that institutions should be taking a look at. So that makes a lot of sense. And one on that too is the most dangerous things, the term that comes to mind is renegades. So somebody going off doing their own thing without anyone knowing what's going on. And I'm thinking more in terms of sales side of the business, the marketing side of the business actually creating risk. They're improving sales maybe, but they're creating risk and that risk isn't being managed or monitored.
0: Right. That's a great point as well. Recent years, I know there have been some notable legal cases. You mentioned one earlier, or regulatory actions related to fair lending issues in indirect lending. Any others you want to mention and what lessons can other lenders potentially learn from these cases that have come down?
1: Well, there's been a couple, FTC, CFPB, not against credit unions though, but they focused on the finance charge markup. And the way that works is that the credit department looks at credit and they render a buy rate, but the dealer then marks up the buy rate. So the dealer come back to the customer and say, great news, you're approved. I got you approved for 7.5%. Well, the buy rate was really 5%. And so that additional amount the dealer may participate in. And so those cases that were brought, those class actions that were brought 15, 20 years ago that we were involved in as experts, that was the central focus. And that's still around. It cooled off for a long time, but then it has come back, not to the same degree as it was 15 years ago, but it has come back. The other aspect that is not specifically fair lending, but the CFPB talks about it in terms of discrimination, are the UDAP, unfair, deceptive actions and practices. And these really involve dealer add-ons. And I bought a car this year <laughs> in January for my wife, and they try real hard to add stuff on. And so when a consumer is not given accurate information, disclosed and they seem to have no choice. They are adversely affected, and there's not much they can do about it. That could result in a deceptive UDAP type practice. Not necessarily, could be by prohibited basis group, may not be, could be by income. Or it could be some other category. But the deceptive practices are probably if I had to mention something that's more emerging, it's been around. It's not new, but there's more focus on that lately.
0: Got it. You can't seem to watch the news or go on YouTube if you don't watch the news or get emails. Everybody's got an email account, right? And artificial intelligence, chat GPT. I learned of a new one. It's chat CSV. CSV is a data file, so you can convert an Excel file and you can put it up and say, I want you to analyze these. There's all all these. Yeah, that one. I got to dig into that one because I like spreadsheets more than I like words some days. So my (laughs) wife would love that. (laughs) And so this artificial intelligence, this machine learning, it can be used in good ways and it can be used in bad ways, I think, and it's determining how to use it and then refine it. But how do you see this potentially impacting fair lending, whether it's related to mortgages, indirect loans, in-house loans? What are your thoughts on artificial intelligence, where we're at with that now and
1: where it might help or hurt down the road? That's a complicated question, and my answer is probably going to be All over the place. But let me start by saying, I think net at some point down the line, it's going to be beneficial. Where we are right now is a somewhat of a problematic situation because we have many of the companies that offer these decision engines, selling them on the basis of we're taking the human out of the scenario so it can't discriminate. I think theoretically, yeah, but you only have to think for a couple of minutes to realize that that's not the case. And first question I would ask is, how do you know it doesn't discriminate? And so that becomes the primary task of the fair lending officer to determine whether or not this decision engine discriminates, And it's a sophisticated process to figure that out. Usually what you have to do is take the inputs of the decision engine And first of all, you need to review all of the inputs, all of the variables that go into the engine to see whether or not there is anything in there that would likely cause an impact. Now you can, to some degree, look at things judgmentally and say, okay, that's a squishy requirement. I don't see how it relates to credit risk, but the proper way to do it is to look to see whether or not you have an adverse outcome when you just look at that particular variable alone by prohibited basis group. Now that's one variable at a time and looking at each variable. now. In the end, what you will do is after you do that and report on each variable, you would then also look at the system as a whole, the decisions as a whole, whether or not there is a disparate impact. And so you accept that perhaps the system is a neutral decision engine. But if it's giving out a disparate impact and there's no legitimate business justification for that impact, for that outcome, then that's a problem. That's really considered discrimination. So that's what you have to do. And you have to do that every time there's an update. You have to do an updated analysis. And then another wrinkle associated with that is many of these systems use the word discriminate. I wish I had another word because right now I'm using discrimination in terms of just slicing the risk. Differentiate, maybe? Yeah, I'll say differentiate. Differentiate the risk into clearly approve, clearly deny. Then there's this area in the middle that may go to underwriters to analyze. And so then you've introduced, okay, you have automated decisioning, but you also have judgmental underwriting. So now you got two things to analyze. So that's the case. The other thing, too, CFPB is really their pronouncements in the past year. They really harped on the fact that your automated decisioning can't be really a black box where you can't explain why. If you can't tell the consumer why they were denied specifically, then you really can't use essentially what they've said. So that's the other issue that has to kind of be sorted out. It has to be almost auditable, if you will. How did we get yeah. to that path? Yeah, yeah it can't yeah. be. You, you can't use a block box or say that, oh, hey, it's too complex for us to understand. All we know is it's making the right decision. Right. I, and
0: it shouldn't. That makes a lot of sense. That's fascinating. We could do a whole, maybe next year, we can do a follow-up on this on what's happened in AI from today to 2024 and, and maybe every year thereafter, because there's going to be a lot of growth in this area, but with growth comes growing pains, right? Yeah.
1: But I do believe in time we will get to a place where the auto decisioning is a more perfect substitute for human decisioner. But I think that's years away. Right. Excellent point. So, Mike, fair lending is the balance between being
0: a legal requirement, but also it's the right thing to do, right? So leaders are responsible for doing the right thing for their organization. How can lenders foster a culture of fairness and equality within their organizations as it relates to
1: all these things that we're talking about? Well, I think it starts with how you present yourself to the public. And increasingly today, you present yourself in digital format. And so your online presence, I think, is almost the first thing people see. It used to be it would be the ad in the newspaper. But now I think it's the online. People are going to search online before they do anything. And so that homepage, first impression, how it looks, whether or not it looks like it's an organization that supports diversity and inclusion. The other thing that it should portray is clarity, that they want the consumer to be informed. And it shouldn't be hard to get information. It shouldn't be, this is on my own personal preference here, is that I hate to go to a website, and before I can get any information, I have to give information. First thing pops up, I can't get rates or I can't get anything, but pop up, they want to know who I am. And when you're searching for cars, it's really like that. And it
0: doesn't just pop up once. You minimize it, you close it, and it
1: just keeps coming back. So you really have to have, kind of like as a consumer, an alternative email and number that you give (laughs) them. I'm sure that's what everybody does.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: (laughs) but conveying that sense of fair dealing and honesty. So there's a shortage of personnel, I think, in compliance departments in general. I think credit unions may even have a tad bit greater challenge in getting enough people finding of this. It's just not easy. And they're not growing the talent rapidly. So the notion that you are recruiting people to fill some of these spots so that they can offer that perspective, they're sitting at the table, they can offer that perspective about discrimination because they know something about it. I think that's helpful. Very good. That's great advice. So, Mike, if someone was wanting
0: to talk about the digital world and that's the first place you look, are there resources and guidances available out there for lenders to stay up to date on fair lending regulations and best practices, particularly, again, in the auto industry? Anything you can share relative to that?
1: I would say the CFPB's website has a ton of stuff because they do this annual report to Congress and they also issue supervisory highlights and they also cover the other agencies. So they will also say how many and what type of referrals were sent to justice by NCUA, by FDIC. They'll have great footnotes that will take you in to give you the detail on any of the cases. I mean, that's the best one-stop shop, quite frankly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So
0: looking ahead, how would you envision fair lending analysis evolving in the context of indirect auto lending and what impact could it have on the industry as a whole?
1: Well, I think I alluded to it earlier. I think there was going to be a greater emphasis on deceptive practices due to type practices. And there is going to be more attention paid to the servicing, the back end after the loans have closed the CFPB. And I think the Federal Trade Commission came out with an opinion last year clarifying that accounts, credit extensions, servicing of accounts, COA applies to all of that activity on the back end too. So you're going to see more attention paid to that. In our experience, Recently, I haven't seen a lot of activity there, but I think by our customer base, but I do think that's what's ahead. I would say, let me just add a broadening of the whole discrimination concept to more UDAP unfair and abusive practices and acts. You're going to see more of that. It's everywhere. It happened to me the other day when I tried to cancel my American Home Shield. It took me 45 minutes to cancel. to talked to three people to cancel. Finally, I canceled it. They sent me an email saying I didn't owe them anything. And then five minutes later, they sent me an email saying they charged me for one month for canceling.
0: <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, I've got a couple of subscriptions that I need to cancel. And it's like, ah, I don't have the energy for that today. And then you get the email, you got charged for another month. Yeah. So I think those practices, things like
1: that, are just going to see more activity.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. sense. Mike, I learned something every time I chat with you. This has been a lot of fun. If there was one question I didn't ask today, what would that question be? And what's the answer for our audience?
1: Well, you didn't ask about small business lending. And so, and what that's going to mean.
0: Yes. Let's chat about that a little bit. There's some new guidance and some new rules out there. Give me the 10,000 foot level from
1: your perspective. Well, essentially section 1071 of Dodd-Frank has, and it's a final rule now that requires that lenders who make small business loans, that's in general, there's more specifics around that, will report humda like information. And the goal of it, if you look at the statute, not necessarily the final reg, but the statute points to determining whether or not there's been discrimination against minority-owned companies or woman-owned companies. Now, the regulation goes way beyond that. It actually gets into the race of the applicants. It gets into gender, which will be hard to analyze. And it actually may be sex, but it'll be hard to analyze. But it goes way beyond sort of like what the statute is. So it's going to be far-reaching. To my knowledge, credit unions aren't really big in small business lending and that they have this rule that loans 50,000 and above are considered small business loans. I don't know what restrictions credit unions have on mirroring the kind of small business lending that banks do, but nevertheless, there will be some reporting requirements there, and you'll have to do the same kind of analysis. Now, they'll get a lot of attention because like mortgages, this will be data that you can compare. You'll have peer data, on small business lending that we've never had before. It's going to be a really big thing, I believe, for the lending market as a whole. Maybe less important for credit unions than banks, but still it's going to be something else that credit unions will have to look at and prepare for if they're doing any of those loans.
0: Yeah, sure. And I did a podcast on that topic when the rule came out with Joe Goldberg, formerly of NCUA, I used to run the fair lending exams. And I put a link to that in the show notes. Maybe down the road we can chat mm-hmm. about that in greater detail. And credit unions, if I remember right, there's a long runway towards when they'll have to start reporting. And then the other thing was, as you're saying, the volume of them need to be pretty substantial so that there will be more banks that it applies to than credit unions just based on the number of credit unions that will hit that volume. So that's something I, again, also the comparison to humda right? If you have the standardized reporting, yeah. you don't have that issue we're talking about with indirect lending where... One credit union has these 10 data fields and the next credit union has these 14, and but not those other 10. And so it becomes more standardized. Then when you have that standardized data, it's easier to analyze and maybe do that
1: regression analysis and other things, right? Yes. And I would say I expect less sophisticated regression with the small business lending because the sample sizes are going to be smaller. Sure. Even if you did a thousand loans, you would be a big small business lender. And that doesn't sound like a lot of right. That's yeah. a great point. Well, Mike, this is, as always,
0: it's been entertaining and educational, and I appreciate your time here today. If one of my
1: listeners wants to chat with you and your team, what would be the best way for them to reach you? Well, go to the website, and that's at www.compliancetech.com, and that tech is T-E-C-H. They can also email me at M- T-A-L-I-E-F-E-R-O at compliancetech.com. And finally, they could call us at 202-842-3800.
0: Fantastic. Mike, thanks for giving all your wisdom, but all those ways to be reached. And I really want to thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me, Mark. My pleasure. And listeners, I want to thank you for listening. As always, hopefully you'll listen again soon. And this is Mark Trichel signing off with Flying Colors.